Hi, we here at Grace Life would love to help you discover Jesus' unconditional love and grace for you. We pray that this message will be a blessing to you and further establish you in the truth of God's Word. Psalm 139. And I'm not going to read all of it. I'm going to read most of it. I'm not going to read all of it because remember that David wrote this psalm under the Old Covenant. And under the Old Covenant, it was permissible to hate your enemies. And so towards the end of the psalm, he gets into calling fire down on the heads of you know, people who've opposed him, etc. We don't have the same privilege. Because Jesus loved everybody who was opposed to him. He even prayed, Father, forgive them when they were crucifying him. So you and I don't have the same privilege. We don't get to hate our enemies. We get to love and bless them, and it takes a great deal of grace. And we start in emotional turmoil, but we know what Jesus did for us. And so we start to extend the grace that we've received to them freely. And the first time we pray for them, um, it's, it, there's a mixed message because we say, Lord, you know, bless them with a wonderful meal. And the tone says, and may the meat be full of worms. It's just, uh, you know, we, it's a, oh, it's difficult. And then, you know, as we just, it's a huge step of faith to begin to bless them. And as we keep blessing them, life starts to flow. And then that life just washes all the muck out of the way, and it's not too long. We're really blessing them, and then it's not too long, and we're reaping a harvest uh, because we've represented heaven so well that heaven rejoices over us, and just favor is released in every area of our lives, and it makes it worth it. And, and normal Christianity is every week you have to forgive somebody, and it might just be for a tra traffic violation or a bit of selfishness. Um, and then about once in three months, it stops you in your tracks, and you've got to r really just forgive somebody. And then about once in two years, uh, you're going to get sideswiped for about a week. It'll take you about a week to get back on your feet. And hopefully not more than once in a lifetime is there a couple of months of struggle because the betrayal has been that deep. But it's a part of life, eh? getting hurt, getting stabbed in the back, getting betrayed, getting disappointed, and I don't know why I'm saying any of this, but the Lord knows. It's a part of life, and none of us are good at it, and Jesus is brilliant at it. So we reach into his view of life and his way of doing things and his strength and his resources. And um, one of the glories of the new covenant is that before the cross, it was forgive in order to be forgiven, because everything was by our own performance. After the cross, it was forgive as you have been forgiven. So even when I'm struggling with bitterness and unforgiveness towards you, I'm forgiven. And that's the, the source of the life and strength that allows me to walk through it and to forgive you. S Psalm 139. O oh Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know me when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. It's not that you just recognize my silhouette at a hundred yards, but from way away. You know what I'm thinking. You see right through me. You search out my path and my lying down. You are acquainted with all my ways. Not most of them. Not even the majority of them. Not even, gee, there are only a handful of things that you don't know. You, Lord, are acquainted with all, all all my ways, even before a word is on my tongue. Behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. So even if I manage to control my mouth, and James tells us that the tongue is the most difficult thing to control, 
Even if I have a victory and I control my tongue, the Lord knows completely what I would have said. Wow. You hem me in behind and before. You lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. This, Lord, this just blows my mind. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? How do I get away from this? Because I can't sustain thinking about living under the spotlight of your perfection and glory. Where can I scurry to? What cupboard can I hide in? How do I find a towel to wrap around my nakedness? God help me. I need, I need help. I can't stand this glare, the, this bright light, this penetrating gaze. If I ascend to heaven... You are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, and that's Hebrew for the grave. So it doesn't matter how high I go, you're there. It doesn't matter how low I go, you're there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, if I go to New Zealand or emigrate to Canada, you are there. Even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night. Even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as the day for darkness is as light to you. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. There are apps these days, and if your wife is pregnant, you can track exactly what's happening with the baby. And when the baby's getting hair, then your wife wakes up one morning and her hair looks beautiful. And when the baby's doing skin, then her skin looks beautiful. It's, it's amazing, because all of this is governed hormonally, and you can track on the app. And it's so good to be able to look and say, all right, Tuesday is hair day. <laughs> and <then> you <laughs> uh, just... Just phenomenal. And it's just God knitting, you know. It's just Him knitting on chromosomal level with amino acids and knitting together the human genome in a fresh and unique way. And out comes all of these combinations of hair color and, you know, unique fingerprint and everything else that goes with it. He, the, the boy can knit. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. And that's a great understanding for evangelism, by the way. Because everybody's soul, saved or unsaved, everybody's soul knows this very well. And when you appeal to it, you have a place of common ground. And uh, you can begin to share the gospel. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret. In Mary's tummy. Intricately woven together in the depths of the earth. And Mary's body was earth, remember? We returned to dust. Adam came from dust. And so he's not talking about uh, the depths, the bowels of this planet. He's talking about her womb. We're dealing with poetry. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. So not only do you know me on a, on a genetic level, on a cellular level and on a subcellular level, you know me on a subatomic level. You know the protons and the neutrons and the electrons of every element that strings this all together. And I'm not a scientist. Some of you might have scientific backgrounds. But he knows us on a, on a subcellular level. He knows us on a subatomic level. And he knows us on a subspiritual, submetaphysical, subsociological, subpsychological level. He knows us. 
really, really, really knows us. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when yet there were none of them. How precious to me are you thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. And then he, he says some unhelpful things from a covenantal point of view. And then in verse 23, search me, O God. Now he's inviting active, intimate knowledge from this God who knows everything. Search me, O God. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Just an extraordinary piece of poetry and an extraordinary reality. God cannot be far away. He knew you completely before the knitting started. And he ordained days for you, not in any sort of prescriptive way, because everything God makes that in any way resembles him, he gives free will to. So you and I have a choice, and the heavenly hosts have a choice. Many of them have rebelled. That's why we've got an enemy called the devil, because heavenly beings are given freedom of will. And you and I are given freedom of all. And so as a Christian, you can make some really dumb decisions. And God doesn't manipulate you out of them. And he hasn't prescribed them. It's a profound mystery. Yet for us as Christians, our experience is often that God is far away. We go to cell group and we tell each other, I'm so dry. God is so far away. I don't know what God wants for my life. I'm here on earth. He's orbiting Jupiter. And he's on the dark side at the moment. I last caught a glimpse of him in 1995. Praise the era. And so there's this enormous disconnect between the realities of who he is. And his ever-present nearness. And where we stand with him, how we experience him, how we walk with him. And so this same David in Psalm 51 has been a naughty boy. He's broken four of the ten big don't-dos in the same time. He's, he's lusted after another man's wife and he's stolen her and he's been naughty and, and, and he's had the oaky murdered because things got complicated He's, he's in a soap opera, and he's covering his tracks, and it looks like he might get away with it. And then the prophet Nathan comes and tells him the story about this rich oak with all these sheep. And this rich oaky, you know, stole one poor oaky's little sheep, and David's really cross with the oaky, and says, bring to him, I'm going to clop him. And Nathan says, it's you, and oh, freck. And then a couple of us write about it, and now the, the problem is out there, and there's big trouble. And because he's under the old covenant, he pays dearly. The baby dies. Trouble never leaves his home. And because trouble never, never leaves his home, he can never build the temple. His son Solomon gets to build the temple. His single biggest desire is taken from him in penalty. The baby dies. His own son betrays him. In the most horrific way. Absalom betrays him in the most horrific way. David knew what it meant to pay for his sins. There was mercy. And in fact, the Lord gave Bathsheba another child called Solomon. And restored the, the process of the promise to a shattered life. And in, in Romans chapter 4, Paul writing to the Roman church says, David could see that there was coming a time when there would be people alive who God didn't hold their sins against them. He could see it. It wasn't him. He knew what it meant to live under the law and pay for his sin, face the consequences of his sin. He didn't lose his salvation. 
but he desperately, desperately, desperately lost everything that was important to him. And David saw a day coming after the cross when you and I would walk with God and never be treated as our sins deserve. Isn't that extraordinary? In Psalm 51, after he's caught and he's at a really low point of his life, he's praying things like, my sin is ever before me. And if you've ever really messed up, I mean really, really messed up, you know what that means. You wake up in the morning and all you can think about is what you did. And when you're falling asleep at night, all you can think about is, and you can see no way ahead. And no matter how many times you pray and how deep your repentance is and how sorry you are, this thing is all-consuming because of what you've done. And the good news is that He bore our sin. And He has taken away our guilt and our shame. And God never treats us as our sin deserves. Because not in part, but in whole, it was placed upon Jesus. That's the, it's a glorious truth. Imagine a moment that you come and visit me, and none of you know me really well. You come and visit me, and you know that I'm a married man, married to a lovely lady called Estelle, and you visit me in my home, and there's clear evidence of the marriage everywhere. Her clothing in cupboards, photographs, wedding photographs on the walls. And just that, the, the, that sort of feminine touch. You know, there are flowers in vases on tables, and there are cloths, doi, I think you call them doilies, and they're ornaments. Guys don't, I don't, as far as I'm concerned, guys don't do ornaments. <laughs> we could survey it now and have a lot of fun, but you get, you get my point. I mean, it's clear that I'm a married guy, but I'll make you a cup of tea, we chat, we hang out together. This is wonderful. But somewhere along the line, you say to me, when is Estelle coming home? And I say to you, no, she only pops in like twice a year. And she never tells me when she's coming. It just sort of happens suddenly. Look, it's wonderful. I love it when she comes. I don't know how long she's staying. Um, he's, he, you know, you're puzzled. You start to ask. And I say, no, we have a great marriage. It's a wonderful marriage. I read the letters she's written me every day. I open her cupboard and I put my head in between all her coats and dresses and I can smell her smell. I remind myself what she smells like and, and I, I just I look at the photographs and, um, and I, re, you know, I read the letters. I've, I've memorized her letters. <laughs> and... Um, and it's, and it's wonderful. And I journal. I write her letters every day as well. We have a wonderful marriage. We like this. You're going to think I'm daft. Because marriage isn't some sort of abstract idea. Marriage is doing life with someone. So you keep interrogating me and now I'm hitting you with all of the classic lines. She's the most important person in my life. I live for Estelle. I sing to her in the shower every morning. You know, I love you and I will never leave you. I will serve you today. I send her money. Every month I put money in her account. And our marriage is fantastic. And you know, the last time she visited, it was in 93. She flew in from Toronto. And there were, you know, one or two days of just the most extraordinary intimacy. We laughed together. We cried together. We rolled around on the carpet together. It was wonderful. I can't wait for her to come back. In fact, I've been saying to her when I leave her voice notes on her phone, you know, please revive us again. <laughs> it's, it's absurd, isn't it? So David, in the worst of his times, he, he's got his sin before him, and he, he says, Lord, please don't take your spirit from me. And when you put Psalm 51 next to Psalm 139, what you learn is that our separation from God is not spatial. It's not geographical. 
Heaven is not far, far away. He's not orbiting Jupiter. The breakdown is relational. And in Christ, that breakdown has been completely and utterly restored. We are one. So David could entertain the prospect of God taking his spirit away. You and I have no foundation for ever entertaining that prospect. It's, it should never cross our minds. Be part of our experience. The right answer is, it still will be a now. The answer that most of us give is, well, you know, lots of people love Estelle. I don't know when she might visit again. You know, I mean, she knows she's welcome. She really is welcome. I mean, I love the girl. But every Sunday we go down to the scout hall and we put up a big picture of Estelle and we all sing to Estelle because we all love Estelle. <laughs> I'm, I'm being naughty now. But here's the thing. If my Bible be true, then I should be living in a moment by moment, day by day, reality of fellowship with God. And I am not. I'm better than I was a year ago. A lot better, because I've learned some things. But I don't know Christians who do. For us, normal Christianity is the marriage I described. And that is not is what, in, what is in Scripture. So I'm going to give you, I think I've already given you one key. Because we're renewing our minds, we're thinking differently. I'm going to give you two more keys. And they are so simple. And they must be, because the gospel is for everybody, and even a child can understand it. So if you're hoping for something extraordinary, sorry to disappoint, get over it now. But here comes key number two. And this, I'm going to say this, and it's going to sound so clever. And it is, it really is clever. And I wish I'd thought of it, but I didn't. And... And the more you think about it, it's going to be like one of those suites with lots of layers and colors. The more you think about it, the more you're going to just, um, it's going to amaze you. You'll stare into it as a multifaceted diamond for months. Or you might just forget it in your pocket and never see it again. But here it is. Are you ready? God has revealed himself as invisible. You hear the irony that you get it. <laughs> it's clever, eh? He's revealed himself as invisible. And there's all our trouble. Because I don't have moment by moment, day by day, fellowship with him in the natural realm. Sometimes he comes crashing into the, national, into the natural realm. And I see him with my physical eyes or I feel him with touch, or I smell him, or I taste him, or I hear him. And I've had the privilege over a lifetime of doing all of those things with him in the natural realm. But that only happens really. My day-to-day meet-and-drink relationship with him is in another realm. And it's in a, the invisible realm. And so until I learn to live in his world... He only visits my world once in two years. And instead of me interacting with him in his world, his realm, which is the real thing, by the way, it was there before this one was created, and it will completely infuse this one into the future. If you've been to any kind of Bible college, they've, they've taught you about creatio ex nihilo, creation out of nothing. Well, it's not true, because creation came out of God. It should be creatio ex spiritu. As God spoke and light came out of his mouth at 300,000 kilometers per second, I think, per minute, per second, per second. Yeah, I mean, it's frightening. Um, just the, the enormity of it all. But so everything material came out of the spirit realm. And we have a primary relationship with God in the spirit realm. He's, and he's revealed it to us. It's extremely clear. Read the book. He has revealed himself as invisible. 
And so now, and I'm going to tease you a bit, and don't get offended. Um, and I'm going to do this as a guy. You girls can turn it into like feminine speak. But man, I'm just an ordinary okie. Friday night, me and my mates, we get together. I dope, I pop, I chop. You know, light the fire, watch a bit of rugby. Ugh, you know, I go to church. I know God loves me. But the spirit realm stuff, it's not for me. And I think that represents a very high percentage of people. And in truth, it represents a very high percentage of Christians. So you have a small number of Christians, and we call them prophetic people and intercessors and all this sort of stuff. And they all go up front. And they do all of this stuff. And they say, look, there she is. Hello, Estelle. Estelle loves you. And so we watch like a little family drama about Estelle as a small percentage of the congregation interact with imaginary Estelle on a Sunday morning <laughs> while the rest of the congregation watch. And it's very helpful to them because they learn a whole lot of stuff about Estelle. You know, her favorite color is pink and, you know, just you know, it's a great learning experience and they feel warm and comfortable and that's a bit mysterious. They feel better when they go than when they don't. But they're not really part of the proceedings. Because there's this huge mental block about another realm, another space, another place. And so I'd love to help you just learn to take a step into that realm. And the thing is, we can all do it. So when, when all of these crazy people get up front and they start strumming their guitars and all this sort of stuff goes on, there's a moment where most Sundays, where the atmosphere changes. Something happens, and everybody knows. Even the little children know. And that's the moment that that invisible realm has revealed itself, made itself manifest. And it has substance. One of the words for God's glory is kabod, which means weight. Weighty glory, substance. And so to learn to walk with him in that realm is simply to learn to function in that substance, in that shifted atmosphere. And the truth is that when we gather together, that shift in the atmosphere happens so that together we can engage. When you're alone, that same atmosphere dwells in you. And you don't have to step into it out of yourself, you can step into it in yourself, which is great because it means you can step into it in the middle of an algebra exam. And you don't have to fall over or twitch or anything to step into it because people will think you're nuts and you can't finish writing your exam. So there are times that there's power, anointing, power, and if I put my fingers in the plugger hole, I shake. You know, switch on the power, I shake. It just, sorry, I can try not to, but I'm, you know. And there are times that I engage with power and stuff happens to my body. But that's not fellowship. That's not essential every time I engage with this realm. This realm I engage spirit to spirit. Is this helping you? Or am I? Okay. We engage spirit to spirit. And I told the story yesterday. I think it's been a long weekend. And in between, I've been popping in at the other, at other church meeting as well, so you get a bit blurry on what you said where. But I told the story of my son-in-law, who, when he first met my daughter, and it was a distance relationship, and he came to visit, I really wanted to know that he was a Christian. It was important to me. And I said to him, on about the second night, with a lot of manipulation and steering the conversation, I said to him, are you a Christian? And he said, yes, instant. And then I said, Why? Because there's some people who think they're Christians because they go to church. There's some people who think they're Christians because they're not Muslim or they were baptized when they were babies. Or People have all sorts of reasons for saying, I'm a, I'm a Christian. I want to know that Christ lives in him. I said to him, how do you know you're a Christian? And he looks at me as if I've slapped him. Because he hasn't got a clue. Not the vaguest clue. And that's the right answer. Because the primary way we know we are Christians is we know His Spirit witnesses with our spirit. And if no one's taught us, we haven't got language for it. 
We haven't got words. It's another realm. And so he, he, he's learned a little, but he is clueless about the other realm. But he knows it, and you know it too. And because you know it, you can begin to grow in it. You can step in, into it. You can, you can grow up in it. You were born into it. And just like when your son or daughter was born, they didn't know a lot about tidying their room and civil engineering and stuff. They had to learn. In the same way, you were born into this glorious spirit realm. You were born into heaven, in fact. You don't have to die to go to heaven. The minute you were born again on the basis of Christ's death, you have seated in Christ in heavenly places. You're already there. And it's worth stepping into experientially because it's as wonderful as everybody says. And Granny's enjoying it in a different way to what I am, but we're both enjoying the same place because we've both died and we're both there. Any difference is she's in the graveyard and I'm still getting on with life. But we've both died and gone to heaven. That's good Bible. Okay, so God has revealed himself as invisible and you know in your knower. We want a voice from outside. We want something to come to us from outside. But your primary way of walking with God is by the Spirit. In the moment you were born again, you were given an internal GPS. A gospel positioning system. And it is perpetually recalibrating. And sometimes you mess up. If you were a racing pigeon, and nobody quite knows why racing pigeons are able to navigate the way they do. Some say it's got to do with the position of the sun. Some say magnetic fields. You know, there's big debate. But if a racing pigeon is on its way from Bloemfontein to Cape Town in a race, so Cape Town is its home loft, and they put it on a truck and they take it to Bloemfontein and they open the cage and it gets up to cruising altitude, Inside of that racing pigeon, everything recalculates and it locks onto the home loft. And it makes, it makes allowance for changes of elevation, for wind. Oh, it's profound. doesn't matter what time of day or night you do this thing. That pigeon locks on the home loft. If halfway to Cape Town it gets sideswiped by a storm and it wakes up, gets control of the situation 100 feet over Port Elizabeth, upside down. You know what happens? It doesn't go back to Bloemfontein to get to Cape Town. This thing recalculates. Home loft. And when you were born again, you were born of heaven. And your gospel positioning system recalculates on Jesus and his will and his plan for everybody and your part in it. Don't try and figure out his will for your life. Try and figure out his will and how your life fits into what he's doing. You're a puzzle piece in his picture. And you know, if you've messed up, you married the wrong person, they divorced you, you murdered someone, you spent a couple of years in orange overall, you took 10 years to experiment, um, to learn about chemistry, you put all sorts of stuff up your nose, and you... And so, you know, you grew up in church and you should have known better and you were a rebel and your sin is always before you and you're upside down over PE. You don't have to figure out how to get yourself back to bloom. You just say, thank you for the glories of the gospel. Thank you that you live in me. And she will say, he will say, it will say, recalculating. Yep, yep. And you can walk out here and take the next step in the will of God, in the middle of your mess. That's the gospel. And when people get saved, it doesn't matter what pig pen they're in. In that instant, that GPS kicks in. Okay. How are we going for time? Is it time for me to go away? Or? Have we be, I've got 15 more. One five. Okay. And then do we have to finish completely, or is it just me over? It's like a marginal call, and we don't know if they'll stay. That's every Sunday. 
Okay. <laughs> can, can I take another 15? And then can we together just step into that realm? An awareness. We're in it already. But let's just switch on everything. Switch on our knowers. Because I'd love you to walk out of here aware of his presence. And then if you become unaware for whatever reason, you just take a moment and you step in again on your own. You just reach in. Reactivate awareness, consciousness of his presence. Because what's the big idea? I don't live for God. I live with God. If I live with him, I'm best living for him. When I try and live for him, I'm rubbish. When I live with him, it works out well. I live for him well. Okay. Imagine you're in the Garden of Eden. And there are two trees. And these trees are sources of operation, of life, of power. They're where you feed from. So it's not just a tree like a peach tree. There are some of us in hospitals in Cape Town who are being fed through a pipe going into a vein right now. There are babies in mom's tummies that are being fed through umbilical cords. Okay, so both of them are sources that you draw from and they define you completely. The one is the tree of life. And that tree of life is in fact God himself. Jesus is that tree of life. And it is based on his nature and his character. Everything about him. He is life. This other tree, we know it from our Bible as the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And I'm going to give it another name to help you understand it. Its other name is the tree of death. And death is more than the absence of life. Death is the antithesis of life. This tree of life is in line with God's character. It's in line with its nature because it's God himself. And when you were born again, that tree was planted in you. So the tree of life is in you. The beginnings of the Garden of Eden is in you. And as you learn to feed off that tree... So, Eden works its way in your life. So maybe you start out with your mind full of lust and full of hatred and full of racism and full of bitterness and you're in an emotional mess because of your parents or the neighbors or whatever. Or, or maybe it was just your own sin because we do a lot of stuff to ourselves. And um, so maybe if I could look into your head, it would look like a jungle. Just weeds and checkers packets, Transkai roses. <laughs> we must hang out together. Yeah. So, so a few people laugh at my jokes. I love you. Will you come home with me? <laughs> oh. His realm is joy, by the way, so it's always just below the surface. And if we just let ourselves ease into it, then, oh, then things get out of control. If I looked into your emotions, I could find the same sort of carnage. If I looked into your spirit, it's pure Eden. And under the old covenant, if, uh, if someone holy touched a dead body or a leper, the death won. So it was, don't touch, don't go there, don't do this. Then comes Jesus, and he's touching lepers. And it's quite a thing. Some of those lepers would have not been touched in years. And he touches them. Because he conquered the grave. He went to the lowest place. He's now exalted to the highest place. And so you and I need not sweat, because life is in us. We don't have to get nervous about demons or death or any of these kinds of things. Because the... Power relationship has been reversed. Now dead things live. Leprosy leaves. Dirty things become clean. And God is so serious about that that he says that if you are married to a non-Christian, the marriage bed is sacred. 
Go and read it. It's in your Bible. The marriage bed is sacred on the basis of your salvation. That doesn't mean that your spouse is saved, but it means that your union is sanctified by the power of the life that is within you. Uh, this is serious business. You have Eden in you, and you learn to cultivate Eden in your thinking and in your feelings. You learn to cultivate Eden in your body. Nothing wrong with a tablet when you've got a headache, but start trying the tree of life first. Take a moment and pick healing off the tree of life before you hit the medicine cabinet as a way of life. And that's with everything. Cultivate making it your first stop. Okay. Once you're starting to have Eden take over your heart and your mind, your thinking, you wanted to... to spill over actively into your parenting, into your marriage, into your work, into your neighborhood. You want to see life everywhere. You want to displace death and leprosy and sin and death disorder and unbelief and carnage everywhere. And life is in, in the nature of God. And He now lives in you. And whenever He is your source, whatever you are doing, when He is your source, you are living off the tree of life. Now, here's the deal, and this is why the picture is helpful. You only get to eat of the tree of life naked. So, if you haven't been well founded in grace, this will trouble you terribly. Because you, if there's any sense of guilt or shame hanging around your life, it's very hard to feast, to draw down power and life from God himself. Because there's self-consciousness. Are you reaching for a fig leaf? Mentally and emotionally somehow. So the fact that you are completely and utterly righteous in Christ. Establishing that thing is really important. Because it means that even when it's your fault. You've been shouting at your wife. You can still go to the... Tr I can have a fight with my wife and it's all my fault. And I can go to the tree of life. And say, Lord, how do I fix this? Because I want to fix my mess out of your life. Outside of grace, I can't do that. So you can only feed off the tree of life naked. It's always going to be in line with his nature. Because it is God himself. And we feed off the tree of life by believing him. We believe him. It's his love language. He loves nothing more than when we believe him. Do you remember Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden? They ceased feeding off life when they stopped believing him. Another voice gave a different opinion. It was a lie, but it appealed to them. And so they turned away from what he said, and they believed another voice. And it's interesting, the other voice said, if you eat of the other tree, you will be like God, and they were already like God. It was an, an exquisite lie. And the minute they touched the other tree, they changed source. They stopped feeding off life, and they started feeding off death. And I know I'm covering a lot of ground now. I'm dropping the odd big idea. But when God gave the law through Moses, all he did was he took the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and made it overt. So the dynamics of the law is life by the knowledge of good and evil. I'm going to touch that again just now. So Galatians 5, 6, where it says, God will not be mocked, you reap what you sow. If you sow to the Spirit you reap a harvest of life. If you sow to the flesh, you reap death and destruction. It's another way of saying, don't feed off the tree of knowledge of good and evil, feed off the tree of life. Romans 7 and into Romans out, when it says that he has set us free from the law of sin and death, and we live by the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. It's the same conversation. I'm just making it visible for you. So we could say this many ways. Don't live by the flesh, live by the Spirit. Don't be subject to the world, live by the Spirit. Don't live in unbelief, live in faith. These are all the same concepts. I'm just giving you pictures.
And I hear is the key. And small keys open big doors. And here's the key. Whenever you are living in a framework of right and wrong, what is right, what is wrong, you are living by the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The tree of life is always a choice between life and death. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil is always the choice between right and wrong. When you're under the law, you're always choosing between right and wrong. So I'm just going to give you two examples very quickly. We get together as churches, and we call a citywide theological um, bosperat. How's that for? Yeah, I really dusted off my Afrikaans this morning, eh? Pop, chop, dop, and bosperat in the same sermon. <coughs> <laughs> So we all get together and we decide that we're going to finally sort out whether Christians should tithe or not. And we have a hang of a fight, we have a hang of an argument. Irrespective of what we conclude, which tree are we feeding off? The tree of the knowledge of good and evil, because our point of reference on everything is what is right, what is wrong. We are living in our own strength, we are living by our own wisdom. We're not living by faith. We are living in unbelief. We have taken the situation into our hands, and we are going to decide on the right answer. And for, for those of you that can get your head around it, any community of believers who build on the basis of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil are building a Babel, a Babylon. They're building a structure that is to their own glory, even if it's in the name of God. And you can have all the unity and all of the success in purpose you like, the fruit is going to be bad because it's not a tree of life, it's a tree of death. So whenever I step into living in my own strength, I step out of living in his strength. So this is earned, this is sweat of my brow, this is hard work, this is what is fair, this is what is right, this is what is wrong, this is where everybody lives all the time. You say to me, Gavin, how can you say right and wrong is not important? I didn't say that. You mishear me, ma'am. How generous is Jesus? How generous? My, my, my understanding of him is that he gives everything. He is ultimately generous. So I need never fear that if I move away from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil around my finance and I live from the tree of life, that I'm going to be less generous because he's generous. And if somehow I've watched people sit at the tree of knowledge of good and evil and argue about the tree of life, it's like Bill Clinton said about the Palestinians. It's my favorite Bill Clinton quote. He said, the Palestinians never miss an opportunity to miss an opportunity. Now, I don't know whether he was right or wrong or not. That's no comment on them. But you get the point. When you get locked into this right and wrong thing, it's a place of fear. It's a place of turmoil. It's a place of sweat. It's a place of disqualification. It's a place of bad fruit. Because it's, it's the good and evil fruit. Seen in the right light, all you can see is the good. Seen in the other light, it's fraught, man. And so we keep going and picking what we think is the good fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then we keep wondering how on earth, why isn't it producing everything that it promises? Because we're feeding off good and evil fruit. And it's always going to result in death. Every life decision, every moment of every day, just learn that he's the source. You see, the, the issue, we, we think like this. We think someone has, is sick. If they're really spiritual, they'll look for divine healing. And if they're not spiritual, they'll go to the doctor. 
that thought process is feeding off this tree. Someone can happily go to the doctor and say, Lord, thank you for healing me. Because medicine is not our enemy. But medicine is also not our life. If I'm really sick, I'm not going to put myself under the governance of the medical profession in the sense of feeding off the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Because now it's second opinions and which doctor do I believe and which, you know, is the vaccine 666, isn't it? Well, frick, now we're all over the shop because we're trying to work our way through a pandemic feeding off the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and half the church thinks that and half the church thinks this and the YouTube clips are flying and there's division and people shouting each other and, you know, families breaking up and the fruit, you know, it looked so good. Yes, you must listen to this oak. This oak really knows the truth about American politics. Listen to this oak. And then three months later, your family aren't talking to each other and you wonder why. This whole thing is feeding off the wrong tree. Our wisdom, our knowledge, our efforts, our energy. There's another tree. God is near. You can't get away from him. He's inseparably near to you. And not only are you fully known, but you are fully loved. And it's a profound thought because there are people who we love who we don't know and there are people who we know who we don't love. But he knows us and he loves us completely. And in that nakedness and in the security of what he has done, I rest. See, this is righteousness, that's self-righteousness. This is rest, that's striving. This is wisdom, that's folly. This is life, that's death. This is light, that's darkness. Which girl should I marry? I don't know. Marry the one you know to marry. You wanted one that was a girl of old, you know, she could bake a blueberry pie, she could paint barns. And now you're going out with a ditzy one. Can't find her car keys. Oh, Lord. Don't figure it out here. There's no checklist for this stuff. Live by the witness of the Spirit. Live out of what you know. Take every moment to step into an awareness of the realm into which you've been born for eternity. Because it's that realm that is going to colonize earth with life. We'd love to hear from you. If you'd like to connect with us, or if you'd like us to pray with you, please contact us at info at If you'd like to order more resources or discover more about us, you can visit our website at www.gracelife.co or find us on Twitter, Facebook and YouTube.